0: Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights, intertwined through personal stories, as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars, demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. I made the title, The Business World, the Ultimate Venue for Developing Amuna." It really applies to everything we do. But to to get started, I want to define a few terms first. One, what is a MUNA and what do I mean by venue? For one, we often define a MUNA or translate it as faith. But what is faith? It means to believe in something without evidence. So my question is, why would anyone do that? Why would we believe in something without any evidence? God gave us an intelligent mind, and He gave us ample evidence to discern that He exists, and that He gave us a Torah. So we have all the tools we need to make those decisions. You know, a good analogy to look at the difference, and sometimes the way Amunah is used, it's it's really more about trust. If you were driving home one night, it's the middle of the night, your car breaks down, you call Rabbi Johnny, and you say, "Rabbi Johnny, will you come pick me up?" And he says, "Yeah, I'll be there." And you're waiting there for him to arrive. Do you have faith that Rabbi Johnny exists, or do you have faith that he's going to show up? Same thing with God, and that's what a moon is. It's about having faith that you can rely on him. And it's through our interactions in the business world or whatever livelihood we have, whatever engagement we have with other people, that we can develop that trust. An an example I have of this is when I was in the third grade, there was a very cute girl. Didn't know anything about her, didn't talk to her, but she was pretty. I was smitten. So I decided I wanted her to be my girlfriend. So I took out a piece of paper and I wrote on a note, will you be my girlfriend? With a yes box and a no box. Folded it up, sent it across the classroom, sat back, waited for her to open it, marked on the piece of paper, and then sweated as the paper worked its way back over to me. And I opened it up and she had checked the yes box. And I was so excited. I went out to the playground, to show my friends, guys, check this out. I have a girlfriend. She checked the yes box. And they say, who is she? She's like, that little girl over there on the other side of the playground with the pigtails, you know, on the jungle gym. That's my girlfriend. I never, ever spoke to her, ever. The rest of the year I was at that school. But it didn't matter to me. I was elated. She checked the yes box. She acknowledged my existence. But we did not have a relationship, obviously. My point is, is that if you ask the majority of people in this country, do you believe in God, they will say yes. It's check the yes box. But to just acknowledge God's existence is not what he's looking for. You know, he wants a relationship. And so what do we have to do to develop a relationship? Well, everything in this world is a metaphor for our relationship with God. One example of that is the relationship we have with our spouse. So this is being recorded live, so I better get this right. So this May will be 16 years. So I guess around, you know, over 16 years ago, I proposed to my wife. So I start off the the relationship by saying... I think you're an amazing woman. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. But how would that proposal have gone if I added an addendum and I said, but I really don't trust you with my money. So we're going to keep our finances separate. And I only want to sort of maybe hang out Friday night through Sunday morning. So I'm going to keep my own place because I need me time during the week. And I really don't trust that you're always going to be there for me. So I'm still going to date other women. Do we have a deal? Obviously, no. So. When we talk about Amunah, we are talking about developing trust in God. And that means developing a relationship, which means there's action items involved, just like a relationship with our spouse. We can't enter into a relationship and just voice our intentions, but not take any action. The other thing about just saying, I believe in something without evidence, that's never going to lead to action. You know, there's the three cardinal sins that you're supposed to be willing to die for Hashem if they ask you to do it. If your belief system is simply built off, well, the guys at Torch, the rabbis there, they're very smart, they said to believe in it, no. And matter of fact, I can't source this, but the rabbis can, but there's, I have read a, a quote from the Talmud that we're not supposed to believe in God because someone else told us to. He wants us to use our reason and, and, and research and delve into it so we have conviction and, and we move beyond faith and we move to knowing. So now let's talk about the venue before we really step into this so there's a clear understanding. We know we have free will, and we know God is hidden in this world. The question is, is why? Why does he want us to have free will, and why does he have to hide himself? So once again, we have the metaphor of parenthood. I have an 11-year-old daughter, and of course, like any parent, I want my daughter to grow up to be a happy adult. So what does happy mean? It means having purpose and meaning in her life. It means that she is reassured and confident that when challenges come her way, she will know how to find the resource to overcome them and, and strengthen herself through that and make it a learning process. The way I've tried to develop that with my daughter is when she was first born, I was right there, constantly teaching her, this is the way to behave, don't behave this way. But as she's gotten older, I just backed off more and more, just giving her more free will. And to see how does she problem solve. But it's it's like everything in life, she, she makes mistakes and then she learns from either I'm stepping in and providing advice or nudging her in the right direction. Pretty much as I threatened to take away technology, but then I just like just make the right decisions. I hate taking away things from her. But that's that's the way I've gone about it. Now, there's another way I could have parented where it would have assured that she never made a mistake. Absolute. In that from the moment she was born, as soon as she started walking around. And since we have one child, my wife and I could take turns doing this is I hovered above her. With a piece of candy in one hand and a belt in the other and said, what choice are you going to make now? How about now? How about now? She would have always made the right choice because we're hardwired to avoid pain and pursue simple pleasures. But would I have helped her become an adult that's happy? Of course not. She would have been very unhappy. She would have been a dependent robot. That's all I would have created. The same thing is in this world. God wants us to be happy and by being independent and being strong. But the fact is, is that it's not like he doesn't interact with us. He controls everything, everything in nature. He orchestrates who we are coming to contact with. He has every mechanism for in- interacting with us. And so what we're going to get into is, in the business world, our livelihood, everything in the livelihood is a business. Whether you're a musician, or whether you're in finance, whether you're in law, whether you're in medicine, we're, we're doing business with other people. And through all that, we have There's systems in place to help us interact and develop a relationship with God. What I'm here to tell you is that God wants to be a business partner with each of us. And I am telling you, my thesis is, which I uh, aim to prove, is that I know very much he wants to have a business relationship with us because it's in a business contract that we have with him. Because if I want to be in business with someone, I want a business contract. I want to know... What are my responsibilities and what are my partner's responsibilities? And the reason I know this contract is so important to God is because he asked us to read it every morning and every night. Furthermore, when I broke apart the contract into clauses, three out of the eight clauses are simply clauses dealing with things to do to remember the contract. And the vast majority of the language is around these things to remember to do the contract. So let's sort of break this down so we can get a clear understanding of what this relationship is supposed to be. So first, we acknowledge the counterparty to the contract. Correct me if I'm wrong with my legal jargon. (laughs) We say Hashem is God, Hashem is one. Then we have a clause dealing with our responsibilities in this arrangement. And keep in mind, this is a contract, so everything is an action item. You shall love Hashem, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources. So again, just like in a relationship, we can't just declare a love. There's an action item associated with this. So how do we love God with all our heart? That's going to be built around acts of trust and gratitude, which we're going to develop more as we sort of build on this conversation. What about with all your soul? Those are the three cardinal sins. As we know, idolatry, murder, and adultery. I will say that one out of those three are things that in our livelihood that we are susceptible to doing without someone putting a gun to our head. So let's get into that. What What is that one? It is idolatry. We are so susceptible to that. You have to understand what that means. I always thought it meant that, it meant that you had to get a statue and then pray to it. I mean, what you're basically saying is you're taking something that has no value and you are putting your trust in it. So anything that we put our trust in other than God... Is an idol. What are you putting your trust in for your livelihood? Is it God? Or is it, does your sense of security come from you have X amount of dollars saved up? Or because you work for a great company? Or because you have, maybe you own your own business, and you have great clients. Anytime you put your trust in your livelihood in these exterior things other than God, the other thing which I used to do, and you have to know a little something about me, I'm 48 years old now. Up to the age of 40, I was agnostic. And so what was my idol? I didn't attribute, of course, any of my. God-given gifts that enabled me to do my career, I didn't attribute them to him because I didn't believe in God. They were me. It's my ego. That was my idol. So these are all things that we're very susceptible to. And so the next thing is with all your resources. So what are, what are our resources that God gives us? Time and money. We're commanded to love him with all our time Again, that means not just Friday at Shoal and Saturday when you're at a torch class, but during the work week, like I said, my marriage proposal, my my made-up addendum, then I didn't want me time. No, all the time. And then second, with our money, that means our tzedakah. So right now we have three things that we are responsible for, which are sort of general categories. Then we go into the reminder clause. Obviously, he really wants us to do this. Remember to do this. First, teach them to your children, your apprentice. In the business, teach the contract to them. Speak of them when you sit in your home, you walk in the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Talk about it all the time so you won't forget the contract. It's a great deal. Don't forget it. Take the contract, bind it to your arm and to your head. Literally, if, you, if you're a man, figuratively, if you're a woman. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and, upon your gate. Take the contract, post it all over the place so you won't forget it because it's an amazing deal. Please don't forget it. Then we get into the next responsibility. And it's getting into obey all my mitzvot. Study the Torah. It's the employee manual. Not only does it cover all the law that you may come up across in business or any interaction with anyone, Torah also teaches us how to behave in a dignified manner that's suitable to have God as our partner. So the next clause is one of the most important clauses of any contract, and that is our compensation. So if we do these things so far, what do we get? I will give rain for your land in the proper time, the early rain and the late rain, and you will gra- gather your grain, your wine, and your oil. I will give grass in your field for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. So we clearly have everything that he's going to provide to us. But there's sort of a problem here. So this is referring to farming. but This is a business model that we can take with us, where it works with any business that we may be involved in. But let's just say that I decide I'm going to take my contract, I'm going to get into the farming, get out of the investment world. So I buy some farmland, buy a farmhouse, move my family out there. I do everything in the contract. I love Hashem with all my heart, all my soul, all my resources. I study Torah. I teach it to my daughter. We do the mitzvot. I do everything. And just like clockwork, the early rains come, the late rains come. Perfect. Spring's wrapping up. I walk out to my farm, and it's just dirt. And I look over at my neighbor's farm, and he has this big, bountiful harvest. I call him over, and I was like, what's going on over here? It's like, I did everything, everything in the contract. And he said, did you plant seeds? It's like, no, I didn't plant seeds. There's not, there's not seed planting in here would say, and you plant the seeds and I'll make it rain and blah, blah, then you'll get the harvest. It doesn't list that. It's like, well, it's an implied responsibility. You got to plant seeds. You don't imply correct responsibilities in a contract. You enumerate them. So that's a problem that we will come back and address. But for right now, we're going to just consider, that is an implied responsibility. So what we have here clearly is delineated responsibilities. We have the four general categories of enumerated responsibilities and implied responsibility. And then God brings in the rain. So in business, if someone brings in a lot of business... One of the terms, I don't know if this is still used a lot, but it was in the 90s and the last decade was, you're a rainmaker. Who's the rainmaker in this relationship? Us or God? If we're using that analogy, which I will provide some evidence later that that is exactly what it's referring to. Our income, the sales, those things, that's what's referring to. And then we are responsible for planting seeds. And we'll build that out and how that applies to, to our business life, uh, whatever that may be. But let's just say uh, I was in a partnership with someone. And we decided to bifurcate the responsibilities. They were going to do admin and operations. I was going to do sales, business development. And I I come into the office one day, and my business partner's like, looks so stressed out. And I said, "What's, what's going on? And they said, I'm really, really worried that you're not going to do your job. Well, right there, my business partner is showing they do not trust me. That is greatly diminishing the strength of the relationship. And then if time goes on and all of a sudden I come into the office and they're on the phone making sales calls, I'm going to say, wait a sec. I want to be in business with you, but you clearly want to do everything yourself. You clearly want a sole proprietorship. I'm not going to force this on you and I can't. If you're saying you want to do everything, then I'll remove myself from the partnership and you'll be a sole proprietor. So keep that in mind because now we get to what I call... The termination clause. Take care lest your heart be lured away and you turn astray and worship alien gods and bow down to them. For then the Lord's wrath will flare up against you and he'll close to heaven. So there'll be no rain. The earth will not yield its produce and you'll swiftly perish in the good land which the Lord gives you. So he's basically saying, you want to be my business partner? I'll make it rain. If you don't want me in the business, you're in the driver's seat. You dictate everything, but I won't be there to make it rain. It's, it's all on you. The good news is, is that whenever we change our mind... When we say we want you back in, he'll come back in. So we get to the next reminder clause, which is a repeat of the other one. Now we get to the benefits clause. So if you're negotiating with your earthly employer and you say, let's, let's talk about benefits, you would say, Here, here's what I want. Here's what I really want you to do. I want you to pay for the health insurance premium for me and my family. Cover the whole thing if you would. But I want a good policy, one with you know, low co-pay for preventive care, one with a low deductible for major medical. You know, would you be willing to do that? God says, forget the health insurance. I'm just going to prolong the days of you and your children, full family package. So basically what we have is a very good deal so far from what we can understand. And then Lord, and then God says, I need you to do one more thing in the contract. I know Dan very well. He's going to wake up in the morning. He's going to study some Torah. And then we're going to have our morning business meeting. He's going to take the contract, put it on his arm, his head. He's going to read the contract. And then he's going to take the tefillin off, and he's going to walk through his house. He's going to see the contract everywhere. He's going to go get ready. He's going to pack his suitcase, get, grab his bag, head off to the airport. And I give Dan to the time he gets out of his neighborhood, by the time he's on the phone or listening to the radio, that he has totally forgotten the contract. So I want you to wear a seat. That way, you'll remember the contract. This is another way. And then he executes the document. And he doesn't just say, sincerely, Hashem, president and CEO of the heavens and earth. He's entreating us He's imploring us. He's trying to to really just, I really want you to do this. So remember, I am the one who took you out of Egypt to enter into this contract with you. So now that we've gone through that, you sort of understand we we know our responsibilities, and we know that God really wants us to enter into this agreement with him. So now let's let's sort of go into the, uh, the business structure. So we know that God did not structure this world where he could send an ACH deposit directly from the heavens to our bank account because he knew the banks would charge an exorbitant interdimensional transaction fee. So we need earthly employers to be our intermediaries, whether they're employers or whether they're clients, customers, we need those intermediaries. And sometimes he wants to promote us, whether through income or getting us in a position where we can better actualize our true potential. So what does he do in that blessing? He sometimes or- orchestrates events so that employer will fire us. And the reality is, is that if you talk to anyone who's ever been laid off, I was laid off earlier in my life, everyone always looks back and say, best thing that ever happened to me, the one thing I w- wish never happened again. However, I didn't have any Torah back then. The, the reality is, is that if that's happening, this is the most amazing moment to do an act of trust. Because what you need to do at that point is review the contract, review your responsibilities, look at it, see what what could I be doing better? Do Teshuvah Ford, ask ask forgiveness, and then say, there's only so much time a day, God, that I can spend looking for a job, sitting on my resume, talking to headhunters, going on interviews. Your responsibility is to make it ring, to bring in the income. Well, my responsibility is to study Torah. Someone to uses extra time and just study more Torah. And just use that as an opportunity to say, I'm so excited about this new intermediary that you're connecting with me to provide me this new blessing. Now, the other thing that can happen with our intermediaries is we enter into contracts with them. Employers, clients, customers. Sometimes those contracts conflict with our contract with God. And what I will tell you is that if it happens, is awesome. What I mean by that is it is the most remarkable, great opportunity to take a step of action and show your trust. What I want one of the things I wanted to add this year was to not only become Shomer Shabbat, but this this last year I wanted to observe all the Om Tov days. So I called the president of my company and said, hey, you know how I told you I can't work on Saturday anymore? High holidays are coming up. I can't work. I'm going to have some days. I'm going to take off, too. And he goes, all right, just tell me what day you went off. And I said, all right, hold on a second. It's more than a day. And I pulled out the calendar. and He's just like, that's like half the days in September. And I was like, I know. And He's like, do you think you're going to be able to you know, make the deadline so we can get this, all this new initiatives launched? And I was like, I don't know. We may have to delay it. Now, they could have said, this isn't going to work for us. You're going to do this every year? Why is that my concern? My contract is with God. And so if he needed to find me a different intermediary, business partners, employer, that's that's fine. And that's a remarkable opportunity to show trust. It reminded me, the reason I loved that opportunity when I saw it, was it reminded me about back when I first started giving sadaka. When I first started giving sadaka. Years ago, I was in a lot of financial distress. I started studying Torah and learning about Sadaka. And I learned you give, just give Sadaka. And I said, that's a good idea. When I start making more money, I'm going to give Sadaka. <laughs> and then I learned that's not the business model. That's not the formula. It's you give Sadaka, then you start making more money. But that's what was so great about it back then was like, I was like, I'm looking at my budget. And it's barely matching up. And I said, fine, I trust you. I'm giving them money to charity. And sure enough, you returned it. I gave it again, and he returned it greater. And within a year, I was up to 10%. I wasn't even thinking about it. But what was special about that was in the beginning, when I was vulnerable, and I was totally relying on him. I mean, flip-flop that in a a human relationship. Someone you really care about comes to you and says, they're in a vulnerable position. They really need your help. You're excited to be able to to take action, to show them how important they are to you. And so in that situation where I'm vulnerable and I say, God, this is – you're the one responsible for paying the bills now because right now it's not going to add up. And he was able to return it. That is what I call the honeymoon phase. And when this came along, I was like, awesome. Let's see what happens. Next thing, physical year in, Rosh Hashanah. What do you do? Review the contract. Look at everything you've done. Anything I need to do better? There's going to be things you messed up for sure. The good news is, is that we can do teshuva. And then when Yom Kippur rolls around, our employee file is totally cleaned up. It's spotless. There's nothing on there. Not one tarnish. So we are in good standing to keep our job. I.e., live another year. But is that all we want in life is just a status quo? No, we're ambitious. We want to grow. So how do we grow? Bring it back to the employer, your earthly employer. You want a promotion. You say, I really want this promotion. You come in. It's like, what do you plan to do? It's like, well, do better. Well, specifically, what are you going to do? Just like, I'm going to try harder. Well, can you define that a little more? We would never think about doing that in that situation, but we come into Yom Kippur without a business plan. So what I've done for the last three years, which I highly recommend you do, is I write a business plan. I have my business advisor review it. And what he does is helps make sure that, when I'm pushing myself, but I'm not taking on too much so that I'll fail and get discouraged. He wants me to be successful so I can grow. So I put in there, here's a tour I want to learn. What do you think? I think you should have this. That's probably a little too much to tackle all in one year. Here's the midst, here's the new observance I want to do. Here's the MEDOS I want to work on. You know, I highly encourage you maybe, you know, before the next physical year in, you get together as a group and you talk about writing a business plan for the following year. You know, articulate right down so through the year you can make sure you're accomplishing your goals. The next thing which is very important is that at that point in time, your income is determined. You have no say on it. And this is key because we're going to build bring this back into planting seeds. It may feel like you have a lack of control, but you don't. You have control over your responsibilities. The numerated ones and the implied one of planting seeds. And that's actually freeing. And that's what's going to actually enable you to, when we get to planting the seeds, actually do that. As I sort of mentioned in the teaser, that's what allows you to become fearless when you recognize that. The other thing is everyone in the culture of the United States is fascinated with this idea of retirement. If I can make X millions of dollars, I'm done. getting an island. I'm just going to sit back and drink Mai Tais, work on a tan. Just relax. Think how that looks at the employee review. Fiscal year end. So what are you doing now? Just working on the tan. So you're not contributing to my world anymore? You're not contributing to it? You're not developing yourself? Are you serious? I mean, that's basically a resignation letter. Next is we have an expense account, which I love having expense accounts. You should use it. That means that anything related to resources we need, money we need to implement our responsibilities to fill in, buying a Lulov, tour books, any of that, use it. If we don't spend the money on those things, we don't get the money. Okay. It's not money we would have saved. We just don't get it. Then I like to look at this as a retirement account. In this retirement account, we get to put between 10 and 20% in it. Less than 10% misappropriation of funds. Now you may say, I can't put 10% right away. Fine. Put in your business plan. This month I'll do one. Next month I'll do two and I'll get the 10. And keeping an accurate accounting of this is obviously very important. There's a, I had to do a lot of research on mathematics involved with this. I'm obviously referring to Sadaka, but I want to, I want to focus on investment options in our retirement plan. So when I give Sadaka, I want to help people that are hungry, that are sick. And I, give, I have about a quarter of my tzedakah budget that I give directly to venues to help people that are poor and sick. The majority of my money, three-quarters of it, goes to Torah study. Why? Because that encompasses all of that. Why would I say that? Because I just read the contract. If Jews learn Torah and they observe the mitzvot and they follow the contract, then what do you get? Rain, it's proper times. You get the crops. You get the, the longevity of life. It includes all of that. Another idea I came up with a couple of weeks ago, we did, Rabbi Wolbe's out at our show, and he did a, a class on percale vote. It concluded where he said, the mitzvot we do in this life, that is what we consume in Alamaba. And then my friend Vitaly said, oh, great, so in Alamaba, there's going to be one percenters too. And Rabbi Wolbe said, yeah. And I was driving home that day, I was like, you know what, I'm going to be a one percenter. Not because if you were to stack me up with... All the Taurus scholars and Zodics that exist just in this generation, you throw in all the other generations, God forbid you wait great on a bell curve, I'm like sliding down near D-minus at that point. That's not how I'm going to get to a one-percenter. The way I'm going to get to a one-percenter is why I came off this analogy. Apple computers close to $900 billion market cap right now. If 30-plus years ago I had gone to the garage where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were first dealing with their first computer, and I said, guys, got deal for you. I'm going to bankroll this whole operation. Give you all the capital you need to expand. I believe in you guys. I believe what you're developing, what you're bringing to the world. In exchange, I want 49% equity. And they agree to those terms. Well, guess what? Today, I'd be at $450 billion, and I barely know how to operate my iPhone. So when I give Sadaka, what I am doing is every month, I am dollar cost averaging in to all the mitzvot that these rabbis are doing, teaching Torah, all the all the... Torah learning you do, the mitzvah learning Torah, and then acting on it. I got equity in all of you. I give sadaka to other yeshivas, dollar cost averaging in every month. All these students through Torch worldwide through all the multimedia, these other yeshivas, I'm dollar cost averaging in to all these students. And if I hopefully get a four hundred and twenty years, that means I'm going to have 72 more years of dollar cost averaging in to all these remarkable Torah scholars buying equity in them. So I will be a one percenter not because I'm as great as them, but because I saw the value in them and I bought equity in them. Here's something else to consider on that matter. When I first started giving Sadaka, I gave Sadaka to the, the charities I saw advertised everywhere. Big names. They got Hollywood actors and entertainers. And, and that's why I gave to. And they're great charities. But, you know, actors in Hollywood are not going to get together and do a telethon to raise money for torch and tour study. That's not going to happen. So you think about what population of the world is actually going to have a possibility of being interested in supporting Torah study? The Jewish population, which is what, 0.001% of the world population? 0.02%. 0.02%. And then what percentage of Jews is interested in supporting Torah study? I would say 20%, 25%. So you're talking about a very elite group. Bottom line is it's a very elite group of people that are able to recognize the value. And the smart money does not invest where the crowd invests. They invest where there the, is the most value. And that's what I do. So now let's get to sort of, I want to bring back into the ideas of planting seeds and where all this fits in. So one is, before we get to the planting seeds, there's one more stage in everyone's, whatever livelihood you're in depth, involved in, it's, it's creativity. One thing things you need to know is that where do ideas come from? They come from God. If you recognize that and you pray for the ideas and the creativity, and then he gives it to you, and then you thank him and show an action of gratitude and appreciation, then it will generate more ideas. I've also sometimes have sat at my computer and just like nothing's happening. It's just like the information flow is off. To me, that is, I used to fight that, get another cup of coffee. I don't fight anymore. What I do in that moment is, it's God telling me, it's not the time for this. Do what you're responsible for. I grab a Torah book, and I just spend the next hour studying Torah. And even if I have a deadline, trust me, once I go back to it, boom, the information flows again. So now I to get into planning seeds, the is sort of where I wanted to build to, this, this implied responsibility. So in the business world, though, what it means is, we are developing relationships. That's the planting the seeds. So we know we don't make it rain, we know we don't have a control over income, so what do we have control over? Well, it doesn't matter whether you are on a sales call, or you're working with potential clients, or business partners, or in our office. What you're doing is that is our opportunity to show God how much we trust him. So what we do, we approach all those situations as a servant. We're there to be of service, solve problems. Often I'll 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 go into a prospective client and he'll tell me about their business. and I'll say we're not a fit for you. I'll tell you who he is. I don't have. I'm not the rainmaker. That's not my job. Second, what do we do when someone brings up a competitor? Maybe it's someone that you're vying for uh, promotion with. Do we speak Lashon hurrah? Absolutely not. Why would we? And why would and the only reason we would have an incentive to it is we thought that we were responsible for making it rain. Because then we would have to dog out our competitor in order to to get that business, but that's not our job. By the way, I used to read all the sales books and everything. The one book that I think is the best book that I read every day is the Hope of Times Daily Study for Proper Speech. That is what I want to read every day. So I make sure when I go out into the world, I'm interacting with people, that I'm very just very cognizant of what words should be coming out of my mouth when I talk about anyone or anything. The opposite of that is when you're talking about either yourself in an interview or you're talking about your business. There's things that are not the most pretty. You, know, you have bad times, every, you gloss over that, so you can make it rain, or you say it's jo- God's job to make it rain, and you get full disclosure. Of course, you show perfect truth. So the idea here is that when we have this business relationship, we uh, it's giving us the opportunity to show to take action to show God we trust him and develop that relationship. Which brings us back to the mystery of why this was not an enumerated responsibility, to wrap it up. And that is, it wasn't that we do the task of planting the seed, then we get rewarded with rain, and then we grab our harvest. And the harvest is our comp. Harvest is not our comp. It's like the stipend. It's what keeps us alive so we can continue to plant seeds. Because planting the seeds is the exercise, the process, for developing the muna and the trust in God. That's the equity. In the deal. That's why this is not an employment agreement. It's a partnership. That's the equity. That's what we're really pursuing. Thank you so much for, uh, let me take your time tonight, you. guys. Yeah. That's That's good, yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.